Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 216 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Laura Bates all about feminist fantasy. Now, we do have a shorter intro this week because as I record this, it's still the 2nd of November and I'm still about to go to Vegas. This is such as the the, um, power of time-bending podcasts. Question, well, no answers to the question of the week this week because it's only just gone up. But this week's question is, what are you asking either Santa for for Christmas or your uh, appropriate version of Santa for your festive holiday? The book recommendation of the week this week is Rhapsodic by Laura Thassala. Um, I really enjoyed this book. It was very short, uh, sort of spicy romance, fantasy romance read. And it it was told in a then and now timeline. And it was done really well. And I really enjoyed it. And it was just a bit of fun. So that is why I am recommending that book this week. So no personal update from me uh, as you hear this. I should be back from Vegas already, which is crazy, (laughs) given that I haven't actually left yet. Um, But yeah, hopefully I may, depending on sort of how much I, actually, I'm not going to say that. Let's see. Maybe there'll be some extras. Maybe there won't. I don't know. We, We shall see how I go. The Rebel of the Week this week is Anonymous. Oh, (laughs) I do love an Anonymous. Okay, so Anonymous says, It was March 2020, and like nearly everyone else that worked in an office, I went to work from home. And for me, the working bit was fine. I took phone calls in the garden, set up my laptop on the dining room table, and carried on, knowing not everyone was as lucky as I was. Meanwhile, the corporate world hurriedly looked for ways to make this new breed of home worker more efficient. The company I worked for was no different. They upgraded us to Teams, the all-in-one video call, diary, and instant messenger, all accessed by an app on the toolbar. An app that comes with a complete dot. Oh, sorry, an app that comes complete with a dot. Now, the dot is clever. It can tell if you are, are on a video call and turn red so everyone knows that you're busy. It turns green if you're not on a call and there's nothing in your diary and it turns yellow if you're away from your desk. Handy, except it turns yellow if there's no activity on your computer for three minutes and you can't override it and you can't change the settings. Over time, that dot started to stress me out. I hated being monitored, me too. Uh, And I found myself constantly checking it. I was used to managing uh, my own time and now I felt like I had some sort of laptop supervisor. I don't do the kind of job where I could just log out of the tool, but I had to do something about it. So I did what any self-respecting corporate professional would do. And I searched how to... (laughs) And I searched how to stop the team's dot turning yellow. A few weeks ago... (laughs) My jigger arrived. Now all I need to do is pop my mouse on top and it moves my cursor for me when I need to do something else. Big Brother's yellow dot can't tell if I'm doing my day job work or my personal lap- or on my personal laptop getting a few words in. I've taken control back over my time and my dot stress is cured. Oh, and I'm pretty sure I'm more productive too. I love this rebellion. Oh, you do know that I have a bone to pick with corporate, so I bloody love it's a rebellion against corporate. This did make me chuckle. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. 
And don't forget, I'm perfectly happy to um, protect your identity. So if you've got a rebellion that perhaps you've been sitting on because you're not sure you want to be outed, then just send it in anonymously. And um, of course, we will keep your name out of it. So you can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons this week, but a huge thanks, thank you to my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show, as well as get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting Patreon patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, well that is it from me this week. I told you it would be a quick one. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I'm joined by Laura Bates. Laura studied English at Cambridge University and went on to be a freelance journalist. She has written for The Guardian, The Independent, The New Statesman, Red Magazine, among others. She is also a contributor at Women Under Siege, a New York-based organization working to combat the use of sexual violence as a tool of war in conflict zones worldwide. She is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. Um, so before we dive into your like new book and, and kind of your areas of expertise, would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about you? Like what was your journey? How did you get to where you are today? And what inspired you to write about gender equality and women's issues in particular? Um, it all started in 2012 when I had a really terrible week. Um, I was followed home by a man really aggressively sexually propositioning me. I was sexually assaulted on a bus and said what was happening out loud and nobody said a word. Um, I had a number of instances of street harassment. And for the first time ever at the end of that week, it suddenly struck me that if those things hadn't happened so close together, I probably never would have thought twice about any one of them because it was so normal. And uh, after talking to lots of women and being quite completely, really overwhelmed by their stories, I realised there was a huge discrepancy between the reality of our daily lives and the public perception that sexism wasn't really an issue anymore. So I started the Everyday Sexism Project, thinking that if we could collect testimonies in one place, it would help to not necessarily solve the problem overnight, but force people to see it. And uh, again, really taking me by surprise, um, around a quarter of a million testimonies flooded in, making it the largest data set of its kind that's ever been collected. So I started using the stories offline to try and create real world change, using the stories from women on buses and tubes to um, train British transport police officers, using the stories from girls in schools to change the curriculum around um, sexual consent and healthy relationships. And part of it was just very much about working with young people, trying to raise awareness, trying to change those ingrained gender stereotypes. And I started to realize just how much potential there was to explore these issues in books, partly in kind of nonfiction to spread that awareness further, to get people thinking about these issues, to let them recognize things they might never have thought about but also for young people and for adults through fiction to explore some of these questions and give people opportunities to think about difficult and uncomfortable topics in a slightly more accessible way. I think we really underestimate how powerful fiction is uh, to influence young people. We had this wave of really problematic 
relationships in young adult books that even like found its way into fantasy and you know things like this and I don't think we realize the impact that that genuinely has because even though it's fiction and we know rationally in our brains and even as teenagers we know it's fiction we do kind of assimilate that into reality and so then we think that being treated that way it you know or being you know, somebody being possessive or obsessive over you is is correct and right and natural. And really, none of those things are true. Um, I think it's a little bit different when we get to adulthood and we are reading knowing that we would never want that in real life. But we have to know that that's not what we want. And we're just reading it for the escapism, which I don't think as teenagers we've necessarily comprehended. Um so, yeah, I think it's really important that um, we have more fiction because I used to almost solely read young adult. And then I like found Spice and adult books. And I was like, whoa, what have I been missing all my <laughs> life? Um, but uh, I do kind of still I, I sometimes write YA, mostly I write adult now. But, um, yeah, I think it's so important that we do have this um, more realistic portrayal of what relationships and healthy relationships should be. Okay, one of my patrons um, has asked or kind of noted that one person, what one person considers feminism and feminist isn't necessarily the same as another. So um, she wondered how you personally define feminism, feminism, (laughs) and kind of like feminist issues in your stories. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I also think there are just so many myths and misconceptions around feminism, especially with social media and the kind of conspiracy theories being quite deliberately spread about feminism by extreme misogynists now online. I think for me, it's very simple in terms of the definition comes down to believing that everybody deserves to be treated equally regardless of their sex. Um, But of course, uh, what that looks like in terms of activism and how we try to achieve that, uh, of course, people have so many different ideas Um, and I see that as a strength there are so many brilliant campaigns happening at the moment within the feminist movement people are campaigning on period poverty they're campaigning on the detention of refugee women they're campaigning around housing and you know all of these things are feminist issues so I think it's very broad and I think that's a strength Um, in terms of deciding how to kind of distill those issues into my books um, it, it varies. Um, when I'm writing nonfiction, I think that joining the dots is incredibly important. I think we're really bad in our society at recognising, for example, the connection between an epidemic of male violence against women and the fact that only a third of our MPs are women and that men are watching porn in parliament or um, the fact that we've got newspapers where people are allowed to fantasize about parading women down the street naked and pelting them with excrement you know I think that for me it's quite important to draw in as much as I can around the interconnections between feminist issues in non-fiction but when I'm writing fiction I think it's often quite helpful to kind of zoom in on more of a specific issue and use the lens of a story to explore it and maybe to challenge some of the popularly held narratives around it so for example when I wrote The Burning I was trying to really upend some of the popular narratives that I saw in schools around revenge pornography and slut shaming that somehow in a school when you have an image that's shared without a girl's consent so often she becomes the villain of the story she becomes the slut she becomes the whore and the boy emerges as the hero and I wanted to write a story that challenged that narrative and turned it on its head so that was very much about focusing in on more of a single specific issue. 
I, I, I already I like want to divert off of my questions because I'm so interested in this. What are the lessons we should be teaching young girls and what are the lessons we should be teaching young boys? Because I have a son and I have a wife. So he has two mums and yeah. we chose to have him. And uh, so I am very conscious of teaching him about consent right from the age of like five. We started talking about consent, even things like if he says he doesn't want to hug, I won't hug him because he said no um so even if I'm like please hug me on the inside (laughs) um yeah so kind of how do you like are they all the same lessons do we need to teach slightly different lessons to girls slightly different lessons to boys like what what and like in fiction are you yeah I don't know I just I want to ask everything talk talk to me about (laughs) those kinds of things Um, Well, I think you've given a brilliant example there. So often people think this is something you sit down and have one big terrifying conversation about at the age of 15. And the reality is you can start introducing it in small, gentle ways. Just as you said, you know, at the age of five, you can be teaching about consent, through example, in that way. You can be teaching that when you see um, grandparents or, you know, an uncle, the kid gets to choose. Am I going to high five to say goodbye today? Am I going to choose to do a hug? Am I going to wave? And that is giving them that sense of bodily autonomy and their rights over their own body and I think that's really important for kids of all genders I think it's really important that they know about their own you know right to um, their own choices about their bodies and that they need to respect other people's bodies and then I think as they grow older it's it's about what we're not teaching as much as it's about what we are. For decades, we've taught girls a million ways to keep themselves safe, to take responsibility for preventing violence against them. The number of girls I work with in schools who by the age of like 13 will already identify with a massive list of carrying their keys between their fingers, crossing the street if they see a group of men ahead, taking a better lit route, waiting to go home when someone can walk with them, not tying up their hair in case someone grabs it, not wearing earphones in case someone comes up behind them, wearing flat shoes in case they need to run, not wearing a short skirt because then they'll be asking for it, getting the right kind of cab home, making sure that they're covering their drinks if they're somewhere out, making sure that they text someone if they're home safely. You know, for decades, we have taught girls so much about how to avoid and it is just absolute nonsense. It teaches them that they are the problem. It teaches them that it's their responsibility. It teaches boys that they're off the hook. It insults boys by suggesting that sexual violence is innate, that it's somehow biological and inherent. So there is so much that we want to not teach and think about unpicking, I think, sometimes from our own upbringing. And actually just the more we talk to kids, like that is the number one thing, Because so much misinformation, conspiracy theories, online misogynistic bullshit, online porn and the messages it sends, all of that stuff will thrive in silence. Mm. If we are too embarrassed to talk to kids about sex and what it looks like and pleasure and consent, then that vacuum that we leave will be filled by those really toxic online sources But if we are talking to them openly as much as we can, little and often, then we're giving them resources and tools to question, to be sceptical of what they see online. And most of all, to know they can come back to us at any time and talk talk things through. And that's the most important thing. 
that is the most important thing. It, the one thing that terrifies me is my child thinking they can't come and ask me a question. Yeah. Like that is the, because silence is literally deadly. That is like the, the thing that, that scares me the most is that he won't, that I'm not a safe place to ask questions to. And I always kind of, you know, like <laughs> my wife struggles occasionally, get, gets the giggles. So I end up like keeping the, the calm face and just answering the question. But like, mm-hmm. I, I always make a point to make sure that I will answer anything no matter what the question is and we have had some funny ones we're getting to that point. he's 10 next month and we're getting to that point where like there are some interesting questions anyway this isn't about my kid what <laughs> mistakes do you see writers making when approaching trying to write feminism into their work so I've got like an audience wide-ranging audience but uh, you know a lot of writers and some definitely who who do or are aspiring to write feminist pieces so what advice would you give them um, I think it can be subtle. I think sometimes um, there's a misconception that feminism and activism has to mean constant confrontation, that it's kind of hard and negative and difficult, um, that it's going to make your life harder, um, that feminist activism always looks like going on a march and waving banners. And I love the idea of introducing the concept of kind of feminist joy to young people. And that's very much what drove me to write this most recent book, that idea that I think um, for a long time, and I completely include myself in this, like we've focused as writers on a lot of the kind of difficult and hard aspects of feminism. And the young people I meet in schools at the moment are often tired and they're dispirited and they're sad and they're hurt and they're angry and I think in terms of thinking about sustainability and letting them feel that it's possible for feminism to fit into their life in a sustainable way going forward I think we have to be brave about also exploring like kind of a wider lens of what a feminist life looks like and and that in including silliness and humor and and joy and I think that that can be really powerful too. What does joy in feminism look like to you? Um, Escapism partly which is very much why I've kind of shifted from contemporary fiction into fantasy uh, for this most recent book. Um, Being allowed to take breaks um, being allowed to envisage the wildest possible imagines of what freedom looks like um, for women and girls, um, smashing those kind of expectations and rules and stereotypes within our writing, but also within society, um, kind of symbolically. Um, friendship, women supporting women, uh, reveling in women's strength and achievements, um, all of those kind of positives that don't necessarily get as much kind of attention in the in the media and the press. I love that. Okay. So this is a, another question from another patron. How do you choose what feminist messages to put in a book? There are so many aspects that you can cover. So how do you choose which ones to refine and condense into the book? So um, she goes on to say in the trial, there were messages around what um, DA felt like um, and how teens perceive rape. In the burning, the focus was on self-generated intimate images, peer pressure, and how social media is used to accelerate abuse and bullying. So how do you, how do you, I think I even want to go one step more than that. So once you, how do you choose? And then once you've chosen, how do you decide 
where to bury that mm-hmm. message in the different levels. So from like like thematically story structure down to like even character representation. Oh, that's such a great question. I love it. <laughs> Um, So for me, the choosing of which aspects to include has always felt very directly connected to my work and my activism. I feel like there's a real sense of urgency around what are the issues that are really affecting young people right now and how can I address those through fiction? So the burning arose out of the fact that in almost every school I was visiting at the time I wrote that book, there were young people who'd been affected by um, coercive pressure to send nude images and then by the kind of sharing of those images non-consensually and the kind of fallout of that in terms of slut shaming and sexist bullying. Um, And so for me, it just felt like such a current topic in terms of what young people were facing. Um, And I really, really wanted to kind of tackle that. Um, When it came to the trial, it was around the time of Trump and it was around the time of Boris Johnson as PM and his kind of misogynistic comments about women. It was around the time that we saw um, the Supreme Court uh, swearing in um, Brett Kavanaugh in spite of a woman coming forward with allegations against him. And I felt really powerfully that there was this sense of kind of despair that young people were looking at the world around them and learning that even if they were brave enough to speak out about an experience of sexual violence, the perpetrator would go on to become president of the United States or, you know, a Supreme Court justice. And it felt to me that there was this sense that there was no justice. It was also the time that we were seeing a lot of headlines about just 1.4% of rape cases reported to the police resulting in a charge or summons. And I thought it was really important to explore that sense of if there is no justice if we live in a world that is so systemically misogynistic that justice doesn't feel available to you how can you be empowered to explore what justice might look like in a more kind of holistic way so that's how I chose those themes for those books it was very much that they felt so topical in my work and my activism at the time and then in terms of how they're embedded in the story it's really important to me that if you're writing fiction you're writing fiction and it needs to be a really good story otherwise you might as well be writing non-fiction I started writing fiction because it occurred to me one day that when I was in my late teens I wouldn't have been picking up non-fiction books about feminism but I was captivated by fiction and that was because the messages I think were always very subtle you know it was about books that were first and foremost a really great story so then I look for kind of parallels and with the burning I found that parallel in um in witch hunts and witch trials and the really powerful symbolic connections between the stories from 400 years ago of women being told that their bodies were powerful and dangerous and men couldn't help themselves and the girls who were being told that you know if they sent a picture of themselves it's all their own fault what a boy do does with it and they're responsible and I could really see that parallel so it's about looking for what feels like a really powerful story but that also has those connections um with the trial I wanted to really in a quite sort of um fantastical way think quite boldly about what it would look like to somehow transplant a group of teenagers out of that unjust society into a completely blank canvas where they had to build an idea of justice from the bottom up and that's why I I landed on a kind of plane crash on a desert island kind of scenario Um, and so it's it's about finding a story that feels really gripping but then is still relevant to the issue that I want to explore I think if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I find it so interesting, like the process that different writers use to get to that, like what is still an enigma to me. I still don't know how we end up right, you know, with this complete book and story that just 
magics out of nothing in our brain. It's uh, it's it's incredible. Um, okay, I don't think I prepped you for this, but I think that this is a, probably a really important question. Can you talk to me a little bit about dialogue and like realistic dialogue between two characters, particularly for teenagers who don't necessarily talk the same way that adults talk? Okay. Um, and and also, but without coming across preachy, because when we have topics that are um, almost, they are a subject that needs teaching in a way, how do we represent lang- their language appropriately without preaching? Oh, such a good question. And this is something I'm really fascinated by, actually. Um, I mean, I think part of it is just listening and being present as much as possible with the group of people that you're writing about. So for me, the dialogue amongst teen characters very much comes out of the thousands of kids that I work with every year in schools. But where it gets really tricky, I think, is where you want to explore topics where people have kind of quite difficult or controversial or misinformed opinions, and you need to represent that. And very early on when I started writing fiction, I remember a really early draft where a a brilliant editor or perhaps even agent pointed out to me that I was so scared about not accidentally convincing a reader of the point of view of a kind of bigoted character that I was writing them in a way that was really caricatured and I was writing their dialogue in a way that was really extreme so that the reader immediately was able to be like well that's outrageous and ridiculous and that actually that wasn't representative of the reality but also it kind of was doing a disservice to the reader that I needed to in many ways find ways to make that dialogue really convincing that actually you needed to hear a character saying those things in such a way that you would understand why so many people do think like that. You know, so in one of my books, a good example would be a character victim blaming in a way that is convincing, in a way that the way that they say it, you can kind of read it and understand why people follow that train of thought and why people are so convinced by that and taken in by it. And that actually that was quite important in order to then be able to unpick it. Because if you were, for example, a teenager reading who did have some sympathy towards some of those ideas, you know, maybe you had taken some of those ideas in from a YouTube video you'd seen or whatever it was, you wouldn't necessarily recognize yourself in a character who spoke in a very kind of extreme and um, unrealistic and kind of autocratic way about it. But you might feel like you recognize some of the thoughts you've been having in a character who did describe it in a more persuasive way and that that's actually subsequently more useful for that person to then undergo a process of questioning that if that makes sense a hundred percent for me the way the way that I can so I I've written a book about villains and I'm like obsessed my you know I I never like the Disney heroes I only like the Disney villains I only like the villains in any other movie or whatever um and one of my favorite is Agent Smith because um and I always use him as an example because his ideology is so convincing that for a couple of seconds you do actually agree with what he's saying and it's only when you take a step back that you go well, wait a second, you know, but it's that whole, that monologue about um, humans being a virus on earth and stuff like that. And I always think that is the mark of a very good um, writer is if you can write the the, the twisted or morally grey ideology in a way that is convincing, yeah. uh, then you know you've got the reader or you know you've got uh, the watcher or viewer or whatever. So I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you. 
Okay, what is your process and aim for each book? I think you've maybe you've talked about this a little bit already. I don't know if you've got anything else um, to kind of add. I know you've mentioned that it's topical and kind of what happens like in society at the time. How do you plan and organize that? Like, are you, I, I hate to use these words, but like, are you a plotter or a pantser? Like, do you <laughs> let it happen organically on the page? Do you plan out like the scene, that pivotal scenes or like when I say pivotal, I mean like pivotal feminist teaching type scenes or like, how does that happen? How do you create your masterpiece? <laughs> Um, I think it has to be more organic than that for me in terms of particularly the feminist themes because otherwise you really risk it feeling quite preachy and I think that a reader can definitely tell if you're kind of driving towards hitting the kind of high note of and this is the feminist message Um, I think that that's a mistake Um, and I think that it just feels kind of too much I don't think there's any point writing fiction that really bashes the reader over the head with a message that they have to take away I think if you're going to do that, you're better off writing nonfiction. I think that what fiction can do, and it's brave and difficult to do this, it actually, if you're used to nonfiction, is to allow readers to ask questions for themselves and that you have to sit on your hands almost to accept the fact that you cannot answer them for them because that's not what it's for. That's not the point. Um, And so for me, that makes me a bit more of an explorer in writing. Um, I know the ideas I want to explore, but I kind of let them come organically as I'm writing. Um, And very much with my first book, I started at the beginning and I kind of just let it sort of take shape as I went along. Um, With my most recent book, um, with Sisters of Sword and Shadow, um, it required more plotting than that because it was more... um, ambitious in terms of scope and scale um but I actually really enjoyed that so I'm I I don't know how common this is but I actually write both ways depending on the book and what feels right for the book I That's think so interesting sword and shadow it's less um it, it, it's kind of feminist by its very nature because it is a feminist retelling of Arthurian myths and legends it isn't it isn't kind of dealing with a specific individual feminist issue in the way that my previous books have and so I was able to be a bit tighter about plotting I think because it wasn't that sense of and this is the moment the message comes in it's it's not like that so how do, so how does your non-fiction differ in terms of process do you write like yeah I mean so you write I mean that blows my mind that you write both plotting and kind of more freely <laughs> fiction but um yeah how, is that similar for your non-fiction does it depend on the book or do you have more of a strict process I definitely have a more of a clear structure with nonfiction. I mean, it, it really blows my mind just how different the two things are. It's almost like they're just completely different disciplines because when I write nonfiction, I know exactly what's going to be in the book. Like I know what the chapters are. And when I sit down to write a particular chapter, I know all the things it's going to cover. So I know that that chapter will come out looking the same, whether I sit down to write it on a Tuesday morning or a Saturday evening with a glass of wine. Whereas with fiction, and this is both exhilarating and terrifying, I'll sit down to write a scene and it could come out completely differently depending on the moment and the mood I'm in and the atmosphere. Like if I sit down to write it early in the morning compared to like after a long day or or on a, you know, Monday lunchtime when I'm hungry. And it's just like a live thing of its own that has a life of its own that you're kind of a conduit for in, in my experience, which is just like it couldn't be more different. They're just not different iterations of the same thing to me. They're just totally different. And nonfiction is so much more manageable and so much less unruly. Um, and that feels safer and easier, but it's also less exciting and, and magical. 
Okay. So writing about sensitive topics like sexism and gender discrimination can be emotionally taxing. How do you manage that emotional toll of your work? And like, do you have any advice for listeners who might want to tackle similar topics? Yeah, I think it is really difficult. And I think acknowledging that is hugely important and um, holding space for time away from the work, for making sure that you're doing other things, you're allowing yourself to switch off. Because I think as writers generally, it's often hard to switch off anyway. You know, these characters and settings live in your head all the time. And so I think particularly if you're dealing with heavy themes, it's even more important than usual to make sure that you are giving yourself breaks and that you're creating, if you can, some boundary separation between between your time when you're working and time when you're not. Um, and I think the other thing for me is it's also really important to think about and be aware of the potential like heavy emotional impact on readers. You know, always being aware of the fact that in a country where a fifth of women experience sexual assault or where 70% of young people say sexual violence is normal in their friendship groups, there are going to be readers of these books who have experienced these things directly and thinking about ways to try and make sure that there is kind of for me built in compassion and solidarity within the book itself but also that there are resources and you know author's notes at the end to really kind of support somebody who may need support after reading is is important as well I think yeah yeah definitely Okay, so let's let's talk about the characters themselves. Your novels explore really complex female characters and their journeys. So how like how do you approach character development in the context of feminist storytelling? Um, I think it's really important to allow characters to be complex and to be messy. Um, because women have been so historically so underrepresented. Um, we risk falling into tropes of kind of, you know, the the strong female character and wanting to create these kind of women who can do and be everything that we feel has been missing or has been lacking. Uh, but that isn't necessarily realistic and it isn't necessarily relatable. And I think in a world where we have such powerful ideas of what it means to be a perfect victim what it means to be a mother what it means to be you know whatever those tropes are in a world that creates such powerful tropes for women the challenge for a writer is breaking those tropes down and creating characters who transcend those boundaries and who are messy and flawed and contradictory often and I think particularly with feminist characters for readers there is this uh, enormous sense of kind of guilt and shame and anxiety around am I a good enough feminist am I the right kind of feminist am I doing enough of the right things all the time does this thing that I once did disqualify me from now being a feminist and all of that stuff and I think it's quite cathartic and important to try and chip away at those ideas of perfectionism because they're not realistic they're not sustainable it's not really what we need so um, allowing characters to be flawed and kind of um, messy yeah it's important to me. I I talk and talk about and use tropes all the time in my own work, like constantly. That is, I I pick the trope before I start writing the book because I'm like, what's the big trope in this book? What are the micro tropes in the scenes? Blah, blah, blah. Never have I ever, (laughs) I was today years old, when I thought about the concept of negative tropes. I don't, that's never even occurred to me. But um, I know, like, as a mother, for sure, and that's that's the thing that, that got me, that there are definitely 
you know, like you have to be a yummy mummy or you have to be a whatever type mummy. You can't work or you must do this or you must do that. And actually they are, they are tropes in that way. I never really kind of, they're kind of these personas that I'd never really thought about. And um, yeah, that's really shifted my thinking to think about tropes in a negative way. I'm definitely, um, I need to like go and intellect on what this means for everything <laughs> in the universe. Um, okay. How, and I think you've kind of talked about this a, a little bit as well, but maybe you can take a sort of side angle or, or talk a little deeper. How do you approach the task of translating complex, you know, feminist theories and ideas into accessible themes, concepts, scenes, um, and sort of language for a younger audience? I think you have to make them relatable to their direct experience and what it looks like for them. Um, and so for me, a lot of the learning around how to do this in fiction has come from my work in schools. So you start to see what resonates. Um, for example, children will get so passionate and um, fired up and um, interested and creative talking about school dress codes, because it is something that relates directly to their lived experience. And if you're talking about school dress codes, you're not really talking about school dress codes. You're talking about slut shaming. You're talking about victim blaming. You're talking about sexual harassment. You're talking about institutional misogyny. You're talking about all the ways in which racist and sexist beauty standards feed into our societal control of women's bodies. But if you went into a school and tried to talk about those issues in quite a dry academic way, they wouldn't spark young people's imagination in the way that distilling it into that issue that is very close to their hearts and their direct experience does so it's about finding those examples for me um one of my favorite ever examples of kind of lighting on something like that and I think you really know when you get it and you have the idea you go yes that's the one um it's it's in the trial when one of the boys is swimming in the sea and a, a shark appears and he kind of freezes in terror. And later on, when they're having a conversation about a girl who's been assaulted and the, you know, those usual questions are coming up about why didn't she fight back? Why hasn't she got injuries? Why didn't anyone hear her scream and all the rest of it? It's possible to ask for one of the girls to ask that boy, why didn't you scream when you were in the sea with the shark? Why didn't you swim away? Because you panicked and you froze in the moment and you had a sense that something bigger and more powerful than you was there and you didn't know how it would react if you tried to splash or swim away. And, you know, if you punched it, it could have hurt you worse. And like, for me, those moments when you light on something where people can look at something in a new way, ways to get people to think about things in a totally different way that's really exciting yeah it it is like well that's the power of fiction isn't it we can change the world with stories um oh I love this okay I guess a similar question uh but in your latest book Sisters of Sword and Shadow you base the world in Arthurial legend how and this I find this fascinating I've spoken to a lot of authors who've done like mythology retellings yeah. and I and I think I always ask this question because I want to do it at some point. But like, how do you take what is an established story and twist it on its head? How do you choose what elements to keep, what elements to give away? Um, and how how did you kind of blend it with feminism? 
Well, I think the thing I love about this setting is that it has a lot of freedom, partly because there are already so many retellings. It's not like one definitive story. There are already so many people who've kind of played with this story and imagined it differently. And so that gives them freedom. But also because of the historical period, you have a lot of freedom because really we don't know very much. We don't even know for sure whether Arthur was real or not. Um, We don't know for sure where Camelot was. There is so much that we don't know. And so I love that capacity to say, nobody can say for certain that this didn't happen. There are historical texts that um, talk about these unruly loud women who turned up at jousts on horseback and like uh, sort of basically crashed the party and insisted on jousting themselves. I love that idea. And I love the kind of fun of, of asking, how can we possibly say that there wasn't a circle of female knights? And the only reason that we've never heard about them is because the men that they defeated never told anyone because they were so embarrassed, you know, or how can we possibly say that in these historical sources written only by educated white men we've got the full history of a of a place you can't you just can't argue that um and one of the things i love about messing around with with arthurian legend is that if people object you know if people say like oh you can't have a you can't have a circle of female knights or that character can't be black or whatever it is you can say but you're okay with merlin you know like i love that i love that kind of freedom that a story like that gives. Um, I grew up obsessed with Arthurian fantasy and Arthurian legends. I just loved them and I devoured all the different retellings and I studied them at university. And so for me, there's a real joy and richness in re-exploring that world through a feminist lens. Um, And it's not necessarily about reshaping or turning things on their head or changing them actually for me it's partly about just asking questions about the gaps you know what were women doing we don't hear very much about women in those stories the men are so complex and heroic and flawed and their relationships are explored in such detail and they're so individual whereas the women are very much kind of reduced when they appear at all to being kind of the the sort of virginal bride figure who's fought over by the men or the kind of evil witch. So what would it look like to fill in those gaps? Um, And it was important to me, I think, to recognize how special these stories are to so many readers. So I wanted to keep some of the elements of that period that make it so magical. I wanted to keep that kind of mysticism of the idea of kind of old magic and the idea of prophecy and some of the magical elements like the pulling of a sword from a stone. Um, And I also was very excited about in a quite sort of fun and mischievous way, re-exploring some of the characters so you know that we think we know so well who Lancelot is and that he's this great heroic figure of legend um but I love the idea of kind of flipping that on its head and being quite um being happy to be uh quite irreverent if you like about like challenging some of those ideas I can't believe that we are already at the end of all of the questions (laughs) because this has been so insightful and fascinating but This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Um, I was on a very delayed train uh, coming back from, I think it was from Edinburgh, coming back to London. And there was a, a young woman sitting opposite me in a table seat. And she was probably only 18 or 19 at the time, I'd have guessed. And she was working on her laptop and a guy kind of came into the carriage and 
he wasn't it wasn't necessarily sexual harassment but he was obviously harassing her she made it very clear in all kinds of cues that she didn't want to talk to him um and he kept sort of demanding her attention and her engagement and he asked her what she was doing and she said she was writing an essay for university and he asked her what she was studying and she said I think she said gender studies and he just went off and started talking about how that was nonsense and we didn't need gender studies and that, that men are the real oppressed minority and that feminists have gone too far and all of the rest of this stuff and I was just sitting on the other side of this carriage thinking oh. and I just um I, you know, when you just, the reason I think of this as a rebellion is because it was rebelling against all of those societal expectations that tell you stay in your seat, you know, don't challenge someone publicly, don't insert yourself, don't make a fuss. Um, but in the end, I just, I just started kind of um, throwing statistics at him, like partly just to distract him from the girl and to give her a break. But partly because I just happened to know a lot of statistics that did just disprove what he was saying. So I just started saying, that's so funny because did you know that only 18 out of 108 high court judges are women? Did you know that women are only a third of our MPs? Did you know that 56 of our MPs are actually under investigation at the moment for sexual misconduct? Did you know that women only take 28% of speaking roles in films? Did you know that there's 573 listed statues around the UK and only 15% of them are of women? Did you know that the Royal Society's got um, no female presidents and only 9% of its fellows are women? Did you know there's 2,300 works of art in the National Gallery, but only 21 of them are by women. And he just kind of looked at me and I just kind of kept kept going until he just sort of stumbled out of the carriage, just looking quite confused. Um, and it was a very proud, yeah, rebel moment. <laughs> that is amazing. What did the what did the girl say? She must have been so pleased that you you had and what what a seat for you to have been sat in. <laughs> that was a lucky moment. She she did, I later saw like years later that she wrote something about it on social media that she tweeted oh, that amazing. she'd been in a situation that someone had randomly started spitting facts <laughs> at the guy from the other side of the carriage. Um, oh my God, that is absolutely spectacular. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, anything else that you'd like to add? Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Um, so my my new book, Sisters, Sisters of Sword and Shadow, um, which depicts a, a female of uh, Circle of Knights in Arthur's time, uh, is coming out on the 9th of November. Um, and it's available from, you know, all, all your good local bookshops. Um, and for more information about me and activism, my website is just laurabates.co.uk. Amazing. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Thank you, of course, to all the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Laura Bates. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. From me this week, next week, I will be back as normal with my normal intro. Uh, and I will be talking to Nick Hutchison all about strategies for mastering your reading habits. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.